Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you have experienced or are experiencing tremendous pain and suffering. Some of you have buried your own children. Some of you have lost a spouse. Some of you have been victims of abuse. You might be being abused right now. Some of you have seen your fortunes disappear. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have been involved in addiction. Some of you have watched your own children walk away from the faith. And in every case, you've asked God to spare you of these things and he has said no. My question is, where was God when you were going through these things? Or where is God right now if you're in the middle of it? Is it possible that the God we pray to doesn't really exist? Our prayers just bounce off the ceiling. Then, if he does exist, why are you going through all this? Why do you see people who aren't even believers having better lives than you're having? How does that make any sense? And if this God does exist, well, maybe he's just evil. That's what Richard Dawkins says, the most famous atheist in the world today. A number of years ago, he wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he thinks you're deluded if you believe in God. In fact, here is how Dawkins describes the God of the Old Testament. This is what he says in the book, The God Delusion. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, petulantial, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And those are his good qualities. <laughs> and look, if you just take a cursory reading of the Old Testament, it's hard to disagree with Dawkins on some of this. I mean, what's all this business about God killing the Canaanites? How is that a loving God? And if this God did exist, why would you worship him? Sorry for that cheery opening. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what if your best arguments to doubt God show that he actually exists? What if your best arguments to say that God doesn't exist are actually good arguments to say he does exist? That's my thesis here this morning because I think quite frequently atheists are stealing from God to argue against him. When they bring up Issues like evil to say God doesn't exist, I'm saying they're actually stealing from God to argue against him. In fact, they do this in several areas by the acronym CRIMES, C-R-I-M-E-S. This is an acronym that we have in our book, uh, Stealing from God, How Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Atheists often say that causality, reason, information, morality, evil, and science point to atheism when I think all these things point not to atheism, but directly to God, that none of these things would exist unless God existed. And the only one we're gonna have time to talk about today is evil. If there is a good God, why is there evil? We're gonna talk about it here this morning, and then today at 2.30, we'll continue to talk about it, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But what we're gonna try and do this morning is to cover this problem if God, why evil in three steps. The first step is, does evil disprove God? Because many people say, particularly atheists, look, if there is a good God out there and he's all powerful, yet evil exists, then either God is not all good or he's not all powerful or he's not both. Because why would evil exist if God exists? 
So we're going to deal with that question first. The second question is, if evil does not disprove God, what is the purpose of evil? Why does God allow evil to exist if he does exist? Why does he allow it, allow it to go on? Does he have some kind of purpose for it? And then number three is, what's God's solution to evil? We're only going to get to points one and two here this morning. Uh, this afternoon, we'll get to point three and go further than that. But let's start at point one. But before we do, I need to point this out. That if you're going through pain and suffering right now, you're right in the middle of it. What I'm about to say might not resonate with you. Why? Because evil is a problem for the head and the heart. If you're right in the middle of pain and suffering, answers, philosophical answers, biblical answers, are really not what you need at this very moment. You don't need a philosopher, you need a pastor. In fact, a friend of mine had, a, uh, had his son commit suicide. And he said people would come up to him and say the most insensitive things just trying to say something. They didn't know what to say. So they would say things and they would be completely insensitive. And he eventually would say, look, I don't need your lecture. I don't need your words. I need your presence. And so if someone's going through a lot of pain and suffering, they don't need you to philosophize about why they're going through it. What they need is just you there, just to support them, just to pray for them. However, I will say this, that one of the first steps back to wholeness, if you are in the middle of pain and suffering, is for you to recognize at some point that God does exist and he has a reason for what you're going through, even if you never discover what that reason is this side of eternity, all right? So I'm gonna start giving some philosophical answers here, and as I say, this might not resonate right now, but you know when the best time to get an answer to the problem of evil is? Do you know what the best time is? Before you start going through it. So you're ready, right? It's like, when's the best time to get a friend? Before you need one, right? If you're real needy and you need a friend, that's not the time to look for a friend. The time to look for a friend is before you need one. So then when difficulty does come, that person's there, all right? So let's start here at point one. Does evil disprove God? You guys ready to go? All right. There's only like three of you that said yes. Are you guys ready to go? Yeah. Uh, all right, good. Let's start here. Whenever you look at a big problem like this, I think you have to put it in context. I'm going to give evidence that God exists on the left side of this slide and the main evidence that he doesn't exist, at least people say he doesn't exist, on the right side. Let's talk about some pieces of evidence that God does exist. Now, I don't have time to, to, uh, uh, to defend all this now because we're talking about the problem of evil. I don't have time to give evidence for all this. I'm just going to list it. For those of you that are here uh, early, or late last year, I was here and we went through, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You may remember some of these arguments. I'm just going to list them now and uh, we'll uh, just briefly mention them. But the beginning of the universe, in my view, is, an is a piece of evidence that God does exist. Also, the fine-tuning of the universe, that the universe is so precisely tweaked that if you were to change any one of a number of factors about our universe, virtually imperceptibly, there would be no universe or no life. This points to an intelligent being. Also, the information found in DNA, your 3.5 billion letter software program, and any one of your, every one of your 100 trillion cells points towards intelligence. Life itself is the product of intelligence. This doesn't happen by natural processes. Also, consciousness and free will, the very fact that you can... You're conscious and you can recognize things outside your skull and you have the freedom to make choices is better explained by what we would call theism, that God exists, than atheism, that God doesn't exist. Also, intelligence and reason, the very idea that you can know what's going on, that you can reason to conclusions, that your mind can think about things outside of your skull and draw true conclusions about them, that's better explained by God than just mindless molecules bumping into one another, which is what most atheists think you are. Most atheists are materialists. They think you're nothing but a moist robot, that you really don't have any free will, that you really can't reason, which of course is self-defeating, but I don't have time to get into that now. Also, the laws of nature themselves. Atheists say everything happened by the laws of nature. My question is, where do the laws of nature come from? Where do laws come from? They come from lawgivers. 
And the universe is orderly and law-like because it's put together and sustained by a mind that we would call God. Also, objective morality, the idea that certain things are really right and other things are really wrong, presupposes a standard of rightness outside of ourselves that we're obligated to obey. If there's no standard outside of ourselves, then you can't really say that torturing babies for fun is wrong or murdering people is wrong. That would be just your opinion. But we know those things aren't a matter of opinion, so there must be a standard beyond ourselves. And that standard we're obligated to obey, that standard is what we mean by God's nature. If God doesn't exist, all moral issues are just a matter of opinion. And we know it's not just a matter of opinion to torture people for fun or to murder people. So God must exist. Also, Old Testament prophecy, I think, shows that there's a divine mind behind the Old Testament. And the resurrection and the other miracles that Jesus did, I think, show that the Christian view of God is the true view of God. These are all evidences for the God of the Bible. What's the evidence against God? The most prominent piece of evidence against God is evil. If there is a good God, how can there be evil? Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you just look at this chart here, does this evil over here, does that negate all these things over here? No. But we still have to answer the question, why would a good God allow evil and does it disprove God? Does evil disprove God? No, evil is actually an argument for God, not an argument against God. Why? Because objective evil presupposes objective good, and objective good requires God. What do I mean by it presupposes objective good? Notice evil would not exist unless good existed. Why? Because evil is a lack in a good thing. It doesn't have an essence of its own. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you've got a better body, right? What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? you got nothing. It doesn't exist. In other words, evil can't exist on its own. It, it's a parasite. It needs good in order to exist. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you got a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of the rust? you got a Pinto. All right? No. you got nothing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil can only exist in a good thing. And if evil exists, therefore, you're presupposing good, but good is what we mean by God. So evil doesn't disprove God. Evil may prove there's a devil out there, but it can't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Now, C.S. Lewis, many years ago, was an atheist, because he went through World War I and he saw so much injustice in the world, he said there can't be a good God. And then one day he had an epiphany, he realized his argument didn't work and he ultimately wrote it in the book, Mere Christianity. In fact, here's what he said. He pointed out that evil requires good and good requires God. Here's how he said it. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, you wouldn't know what a crooked line was unless you knew what a straight line was, right? You wouldn't know what injustice was unless you knew what justice was. Something can't be not right unless something is Something can't be immoral unless something is. So do you see that evil presupposes good and good presupposes God? In fact, you could look at it this way. The shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, you have to have sunshine, right? In other words, in order to have evil, you have to have good. Oh, you can have sunshine without shadows. You can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. You can't have shadows without sunshine. So if shadows exist, sunshine exists. If evil exists, good exists. And if good exists, God exists. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but if, God, or if evil exists, and we all know it does, we're always complaining about something, aren't we? If evil exists, then God exists. So we haven't disproven God. Now, you might be interested to learn that even atheists agree with this. Richard Dawkins himself agrees with this. Here's what Richard Dawkins said a number of years ago about this. He basically said, if atheistic materialism is true, which is his view, 
There is no evil or no good. Here's how he put it. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. There is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Again, you're just a molecular machine. You're just a moist robot. You're just dancing to your music. There's no good or evil. There's no right or wrong. There's no moral or immoral. Stuff just happens. Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, wait a minute. Isn't this the same guy who just a few minutes ago at least Frank quoted him a few minutes ago to say this. Notice the word that he uses right in the middle of this quote, this word unjust. He just got done saying there's no such thing as justice. You remember that in the previous quote? Where's he getting this concept of unjust from then? You know where he's getting it from? He's stealing it from God. He's taking a standard from God to say God doesn't exist. Look, you, you, you can't do that. You're, you're assuming God to say he doesn't exist. You're sitting in God's lap to slap his face. Look, either justice exists or it doesn't. If it exists, God exists. If it doesn't, what are you complaining about? Now, at this point, you might say, wait a minute, Frank. Okay, I can see that God must exist if evil exists. But you Christians are judgmental hypocrites. Now, when somebody says that, what should you say back to them? You might say, hey, thanks, you're giving me evidence for God, because that's what this is. When somebody calls you a judgmental hypocrite or some other name, they're actually giving you evidence for God. Why? Because you could just say, what's wrong with being a judgmental hypocrite, right, if there's no God? What's wrong with anything if there's no God? Everything's just a matter of opinion, if there's no God, nothing's ultimately right or wrong. So any evil I do isn't really evil. So when people complain, they're presupposing a standard of good that they're complaining about. Where are they getting the standard from? But we do, we do need to address this issue. Why are Christians judgmental hypocrites? Why aren't we just like Jesus? Does this disprove Christianity because we're not just like Jesus? In fact, let me ask you guys a question. When somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? Who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven, right? You blame the player. If I play Beethoven poorly, don't blame Beethoven. I messed up, not Beethoven. So if somebody plays Jesus poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Jesus. And none of us play Jesus perfectly. We all play him poorly. If, but, if, but if I'm not true and beautiful as a follower of Jesus, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't true and beautiful. He still is, even though I'm not. So you might want to say, hey, yeah, you're right. I'm not a good Christian. I, I, don't, I can't live up to what Jesus told me to live up to. And that's what, in fact, uh, Christopher Hitchens said in one of the debates I had with him. You guys know who Christopher Hitchens was? Christopher Hitchens was a brilliant British atheist who sounded more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. And he wrote this book, God is Not Great, How Religion, notice this word poisons everything. What does this word poisons mean in this context? It means, well, religion's evil, right? That's what he's saying. And so in our debates, this is actually a picture from our second debate. You can see these on our YouTube channel. Um, I said, Christopher, a lot of what you write in your book, God is Not Great, is true. Because he talks about a lot of the evil religious people have done. And I agree with him. Yeah, we have done a lot of evil. But what standard are you using to judge us as doing evil? You don't have a standard. You're an atheist. You're stealing a standard from God to say Christians haven't been good people. So you have to use God in order to blame us for that. You're stealing from God while you're arguing against him. And uh, by the way, religion does not poison everything. Everything poisons religion, right? I poison religion because I don't live up to the pure words of Christ. Of course, if I could, I wouldn't need him. Christopher Hitchens was actually giving us evidence for the Christian worldview 
that we're fallen. We all agree with that. We're all fallen. That's why we need a savior. In fact, I said to him in the second debate at the College of New Jersey, I said, Christopher, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus told me to do. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. If I was perfect, I wouldn't need a savior. In fact, I said to him that night, I said, Christopher, I'm a hypocrite. I, 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 I can't do it. I can't live up to it. And when people say to me, I can't go to church because there's too many hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. <laughs> of course we're hypocrites. Look, the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. Now, I know as Pastor Mike has told you, we are saints theologically because when you're a Christian, Jesus sees you as him. You're blameless in that regard. But still, practically every day, we still have a sin nature and we're still sinners. So we will fall. So if somebody says, well, you, you Christians are evil, you might agree sometimes we are, but that doesn't disprove Christianity. In fact, it actually giving you evidence that the Christian worldview is true and we all need a savior. In fact, here's the bottom line to this whole thing. The existence of evil doesn't indicate the absence of God from the world, but the absence of God from our lives. That's really what's going on here. Now, let's go back to our chart for a second. You know, in reality, evil ought not be on the right side of the chart. Evil, ought, evil is another argument actually for God. Because if it exists, it's giving evidence that God does exist. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions, though. We now have to move on to the second question. Okay, what's the purpose of evil? Why is God using evil? How is he using evil? What? It doesn't disprove it, but it's still a problem. So how do we deal with it? All right, now we're going on to question number two. A number of years ago, I was at Michigan State University. We go to a lot of universities, and we present... A program from our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We present that on college campuses and then we take questions. And at Michigan State, I had gone through the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation and I noticed that I was, I'm going through this presentation, I knew there was a militant atheist in the audience because he sat through the entire two-hour presentation looking like this. <laughs> I mean, he didn't crack a smile once and I had some pretty good jokes in there. Anyway, when it was time for Q&A, I knew he was gonna come out and say something, so I said, are there any questions? And he was on this side of the room and his hand shot up right away. I said, yes, sir. He said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? He said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. Do You ever notice when we complain about evil, we're always complaining about somebody else. It's always, hey, God, why don't you stop him? Or God, why don't you stop her? We never say, God, why don't you stop me? Ladies and gentlemen, if God were to stop evil at midnight tonight, would you still be alive at 1201? Yeah, I wouldn't be. No, God wanted to stop evil, he could. He could just take away our free will. It'd be done, no more evil. But he doesn't do that. In fact, I said to the guy that night, I said, sir, that's an excellent question. And if we had a, a semester to talk about it, we could really get into it. But we don't have a semester. We just have a few minutes. So I want to show you a one minute and 46 second video that won't give you a complete answer to the problem. But it'll give a, kind of a doorway to an answer. It'll give you a couple of good points. So I showed him this short video. I'm going to show it to you now. There's a lot going on in this video. You really got to pay attention but it's a short way of showing kind of the essence to his question. If there is a good God, why doesn't he stop the evil? You guys ready? Here it is, right here. Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies, and subatomic particles, and rainforests, and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle, or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if, when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing, but if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God. 
Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. Now, if you want to see more videos like that, go to our YouTube channel, the Cross-Examine YouTube channel. That particular video was done by a friend of mine. His name is Jim Zangmeister. He went to our seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary. And if you want to see that again, just go to YouTube and Google, Is God Good? You'll find it. But here's the kind of bottom line to that video. Here's basically what it said. Evil exists because we have free will, which is the only way love could exist. I mean, God could have made a, a, a universe of robots, right? But it wouldn't be a moral universe then. So he gives us free will so we could love. The problem is, as soon as he gives us free will, he also gives us the ability to do evil. And so that's why evil exists. So I showed that video there that night at Michigan State. How do you think the atheist looked after I showed the video? Yeah, he, uh, he looked like this. <laughs> he said, okay, that explains some of it. I see how free will can do that. But you haven't explained why, say, babies die. They didn't do anything wrong. There's no free will there. What purpose possibly could God have for that? And since I had just gone through the evidence that God exists and Christianity was true, I said, well, sir, there's no way of answering a question, what is the purpose of a particular event, unless you know what the overall purpose of life is. Because you can't see what the overall, pur if you can't see what the overall purpose is, you can't see what these events within the universe, whether they're they have a purpose or not. So you gotta know the overall purpose of life before you even know what these other little events are and what they do. So I asked the question, what's the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? This is the interactive portion of the program. <laughs> Why are we here? Serve, serve God. Where does it say that? Glorify God. Where does it say that? That's the Westminster Confession. You're not even Calvinist and you're saying that. So what's, what's, what is the purpose of life? To so know God and to make him known. I think you're on to something there. In fact, Jesus actually tells us what the purpose is in... John chapter 17, this is where Jesus is going through his high priestly prayer. He's praying for us, and here's what he says. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they, meaning us, may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. Now, when we say know God, we don't just mean intellectually. Remember, we talked about this several months ago. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is just intellectual, to know that God exists. God isn't just interested in that. Oh yeah, I know you exist, God, but I'm gonna go my own way. It's not just intellectual, it's also volitional. It's not just of the head, it's of the heart. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? You guys are sharp this morning. He says, even the demons know that God exists, but they tremble. What? They don't want to trust in Christ. They know he exists, but they don't trust in him. So God wants not just an intellectual acknowledgement that he exists. He wants a relationship, meaning you go from belief that to belief in, to trust in. And then, if you add the Great Commission to this, go therefore make disciples of all nations, it's not only to know God, 
It's to make him known. That's why we're here, to know God and to make him known. Here's the problem. Knowing and growing in God often requires pain. In the fallen state we're in, it often requires pain. C.S. Lewis probably said it best. He said, God whispers to us in our conscience but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Sometimes you're only interested in God when you're going through pain, aren't you? Sometimes you only look up when you're on your back. In fact, the scriptures talk about this. That sometimes you'll only come to God when you go through difficulty, and difficulty is what builds character in you. In fact, James said this, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Time out, all right, who in here counts it joy when you're going through a trial? I don't, do you? I'm not going, thank you, God, I'm gonna learn from this. I'm like, God, get me out of this, aren't you? Isn't that what you're doing? But James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Paul in Romans 5 says, we also glory in tribulation. Time out, Paul. Who glories in tribulation here? Yeah, none of us do. But this is what Paul is saying. There's a, there's a reward at the end of this. This is why you ought to glory in it. Something good's going to come out of this. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Look, there's only two things that you can have in life. You can either have hope or you can have despair. Notice, as we'll talk about more this afternoon, many in our country are experiencing despair, not hope. That's why suicide rates are climbing. That's why divorce is high. That's why drug use is climbing. People are looking for hope in all the wrong places. They're in despair. They think there's no meaning. I might as well just get a good buzz and get through this. Also, ladies and gentlemen, think about this. What would happen to you if you got everything you wanted every time? In other words, things always went your way in life. Whatever you wanted, you got. What would happen to you? I don't know about you, I'd become a spoiled brat, wouldn't you? I mean, what do we say about kids who get everything they want? They're spoiled. What's spoiled about them? Their character is spoiled. You want to ruin someone? Just give them everything he or she wants. Just give them whatever they want all the time. You will make them a monster. This is why, unfortunately, many people who become celebrities, their character is destroyed because nobody says no to them ever. Everybody just caters to them and fawns over them, and they get more and more selfish. You want to ruin someone? Give that kid everything he or she wants. You know, we were just talking about this last night over dinner. Do you know any trust fund babies who turn out well? Very few. It's the exception rather than the rule, isn't it? You make life too easy for somebody. You give them everything they want. They're not going to become more like Jesus. They're going to become more like Satan. With our fallen nature, we need people to tell us no. We need trouble in our lives. In fact, trouble and suffering is what develops character. Some virtues can only be developed through evil and trial. For example, it's hard to develop courage unless there's danger. It's hard to develop perseverance without obstacles. You really can't develop compassion unless someone is suffering. It's hard to develop patience without tribulation. In fact, I'm an impatient person by nature, and I've been praying for patience for quite a while, and frankly, I'm getting tired of waiting for it. <laughs> by the way, never pray for patience. Why? What's going to happen that day? Everything will go wrong. The transmission will fall out of your car. Every line you get in will be the slowest line. Everybody's going to get in your way at the wrong time. But that's the only way that you're ever going to learn patience is to be inconvenienced, not when you get everything you want immediately. It's hard to develop character without adversity. In fact, people who don't go through adversity normally are very shallow people. Job, the famous biblical character, is a much deeper personality after he's gone through all the difficulty than before. He's not superficial anymore. 
and it's hard to develop faith or trust without need. God has purposes for this, and sometimes we don't see it. In fact, I know this is trite, but it's true. No pain, no gain. Actually, that doesn't go far enough. More pain, more gain. Paul says this at the end of a uh, section on suffering you ought to read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's how he ends this section on pain and suffering. Here's what he says. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. If what... if If what you really need in life is an eternal perspective, pain and suffering will help you get that. You do need an eternal perspective because everything might not make sense just in this space-time continuum. And Paul is essentially saying here, when you go through difficulty, you're enhancing your capacity to enjoy God now, not only now, but in eternity. What do we mean by that? I'll just give you a, I know it's it's a trivial example, but... This example will communicate, I think, what Paul is trying to say here regarding enhancing your capacity to enjoy something. I grew up in New Jersey, exit 100B, all right? I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now, but I grew up, so I was a New York Giant fan. A terrible team, but there's one guy here, okay? Two, there's two guys here, forget about it. They're admitting it, look at this. But they had some good years. In fact, back in 2004, they drafted, they traded to draft Eli Manning number one in the draft. But the first few years in New York, he wasn't very good. In fact, um, when you're drafted number one in New York and you turn out not to be very good and your brother's name is Peyton, you're gonna hear about it, right? So he heard about a lot of people were really down on him. And then in 2007, he had a pretty good year. He got his team to the playoffs and he defeated three teams on the road to get to the Super Bowl. One of the teams he defeated, unfortunately for you guys, was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then also he defeated the hated Dallas Cowboys. In fact, we have a saying in New Jersey, whenever the Cowboys win, it's living proof that Satan is alive and well. (laughs) And then, of course, he beat Brett Favre in Brett Favre's last game in Green Bay. The problem is, in the Super Bowl, he was going up against the undefeated New England Patriots, who had (laughs) spoiler alert, they lost. All right? (laughs) The undefeated New England Patriots, who were 18 and 0, Tom Brady had 50 touchdown passes that year, most of them to Randy Moss. The, uh, the Patriots were 12 point favorites. The only people that picked the Giants were the Giants. In fact, during the, uh, the media day, they asked one of the giant receivers, Plexigo Burris, what's going to be the final score? And Plexigo said, we're going to win. Giants are going to win 21-17. And they went over to Tom Brady. And Tom Brady, being the class act that he was and is, didn't really talk any trash. All he said was, oh, we're only going to score 17 points? Okay. And then they actually played the game. Giants had a really good defense. They sacked Brady five times. He didn't like that. And fourth quarter shows up, two minutes to go. Patriots are up 14 to 10. Eli has the ball on his 20-yard line, has to go 80 yards to win. And uh, looks like he's going to be sacked on a third and five play. Somehow, normally he's a statue back there. He spins out of this sack. He throws a Hail Mary pass over the middle of the field. And somehow, it sticks to David Tyree's helmet. I don't know if you ever, if you remember this. Tyree was a Christian. That was the last pass he caught in the NFL. He walked off the field. They have all video of this. He goes, man, this is supernatural. A few plays later, Peyton, I mean, uh, Peyton, (laughs) Eli hits hits Barris, the guy who predicted the score in the corner of the end zone. Giants win 17 to 14. The Patriots don't even score 17 points. And Tom Brady was deflated. I see we have a sophisticated audience here. Some of you will get that tomorrow. And then four years later, Eli and the Giants did it again, beat the same Patriots. And that that year, the score was like 21 to 17. Now, here's the, the point of all this. 
At the end of the game, Eli held up the Lombardi trophy, and so did the third string quarterback who played, I think, one down all year. But do you think Eli enjoyed holding that trophy up more than the third string quarterback? Yeah, of course he did. Why? Because he was in the game. He went through all the difficulty. He went through all the people that said he couldn't do it. He went through all the people that said he wasn't as good as his brother. He went through all the people that said, no, 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 you'll never be. They, they wasted the number one pick on you. You're not very good. And he went through all the difficulty of actually winning the games, all the injuries and all that. In other words, he enhanced his capacity to enjoy the reward. Sure, yeah, the third-string quarterback enjoyed it, but not as much as Eli. Why? Because he was actually in the game. And when you're going through difficulty here, ladies and gentlemen, you're enhancing your capacity to enjoy the reward. Not only now, but in eternity. Difficulty will work out somehow. In fact, according to the scriptures, suffering will bring a greater good. In fact, Paul actually says this. Here's what he says in Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He goes on to say to be conformed to the image of his son. When you're going through difficulty, you're being conformed to the image of his son. When you're going through prosperity, you know what you're doing? You're probably being deformed. Because prosperity is a greater trial than difficulty. Prosperity can get us off track quite quickly. Look, none of us want to be poor. We get that. But what did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor. Why? Because they know they need God. The rich man doesn't think he needs anything, does he? He can make it on his own. Your biggest trial, my biggest trial, is when things are going right, not when things are going wrong. Because we're apt to get our eye off the ball when things are going right, aren't we? Now, I, I, I did. All, we're still at Michigan State, by the way. I, I explained all this in a shorter period of time at Michigan State. How do you think the atheist looked after I explained this? Yeah, you still look like that. <laughs> he said, well, that doesn't explain it all. Sure, I can see how some evil bring fo brings forth good. I can see that. But there's some good out there, or there's some evil out there that has no good purpose. It never leads to good. It's what we would call philosophically gratuitous evil. There's no good that's going to come from it. I said, sir, how do, how do you know that? How do you know there's no good coming from it? In fact, look, you're right. If, if, if this is life, if you're just born and then you die, yeah, there's a lot of evil that happens. There's probably no good that comes from it. But what happens if life doesn't end there? What happens if life actually continues into eternity? What then? Well, what really helped me in answering the question, how... Why would God allow this evil? This doesn't appear to be, there's no good coming from it. Like, you know, why does a baby die? What good comes from that? Well, there's something that I learned in reading. There's something out there known as the ripple effect. What's the ripple effect? That every event that occurs in life ripples forward to affect every other event or many other events. Everything that happens has a ripple effect. I mean, think of the ripple effect in your own life. You're sitting here right now. Why do you even exist? Well, your parents needed to meet. And their parents needed to meet. And their parents needed to meet. And all the other events that occur in life have brought you to this point right now. There are always ripples. And we can't trace all those ripples. But God can, can he? If you would ask me, why does a baby die? I would go... Well, I know why babies die in general, because we live in a fallen world. But why did this baby die? I don't know. But I know why I don't know. I'm inside of time. I can't see the, the, all the ripples. I can't see where they all go. But God can. He's outside of time. Maybe a baby dying today ripples forward and through a series of events, 500 years from now, causes a great evangelist to rise up and save millions of people. I can't see how all those ripples got to that point, but God can. So when something happens in your life, you go, I can't see any good coming from this. Of course you can't. You're inside of time. God can. He's outside of time. He can see where the ripples are going. You can't. I can't. In fact, sometimes you can see the ripple effect. You can see the ripple effect in the Bible. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers who hate him because he's dad's favorite. And somehow he gets to Egypt 
and he's treated poorly there. He's thrown in prison on trumped up charges and all this. But then he rises to prominence in Egypt. In fact, he becomes the third highest official in Egypt. And he puts a whole bunch of grain aside in case there's a famine. And then there is a famine. And his own family in Israel leaves Israel to go to Egypt to escape the famine. And Joseph can take care of them. As soon as Joseph recognizes who they are, they were the family that sold them into slavery. What does Joseph say to him? You dirty rats, you're gonna pay for what you did to me. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Notice the ripple effect here. The very people that did evil, that evil rippled forward to help them later. Now, you don't do evil for that to happen. I'm just saying, you can see it here. There's the ripple effect. The evil that happened to Joseph actually rippled forward to help him as well. Here's the bottom line. While respecting free choice, God can bring good from evil through the ripple effect. So if you, you're seeing something in your life, you go, I don't know where this is going. Of course you don't. That's why you can trust God. Now, typically when people present the problem, they say, God is all loving and all powerful. If he's all loving and all powerful, why does evil still exist? Either he's not all loving or he's not all powerful or not both. You know what they forget when they create this problem? What they forget is, yes, God is all loving and all powerful, but he's also all wise. He knows where all this is going. We don't. One of the most profound things ever said on this topic was said by a Roman Catholic priest at Notre Dame in Paris about 150 years ago. Here's what he said about this issue. He said, if God would concede me his power for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. Because God can see the end from the beginning. We can't. Now at about this time, we're still at Michigan State. Atheist is over here, about 10 feet from him. Another hand goes up. I said, yes, sir. The guy says, I know of a woman who was raped and the rape nearly destroyed her. In fact, this woman became pregnant as a result of this rape. But she decided that she was not gonna punish the baby for the sin of the father. She decided to bring this baby to term. His voice began to crack. And he said, this woman gave birth to a baby boy. And this baby boy grew up to be a pastor. By this time, he's crying in front of everybody. He says, this pastor has brought a lot of people to Jesus and has also discipled a lot of people in Jesus. And he said, that pastor is me. And then he looked over at the atheist and he said, if my mom can bring good from evil, so can God. Amen. And I said, you're dismissed. I mean, what could I say after that? The guy had a better ending than I had. Well, how do you think the atheist looked after that happened? He was gone. He literally got up and he ran out the back door. But I went up to the... Uh, pastor and I said hey what's your name he said my name is Gary Bingham uh, I said he said I'm from Marion Indiana he had drove driven from Marion Indiana to Lansing that night to see the seminar and I said well how's your mom and he said well my mom is much better now because four years ago she became a Christian and I said well obviously what she did in your life had great ripple effects but you know the ripple effect continued to to this night because all the people here at Michigan State just heard the story. And by the, by the way, that ripple effect is still happening today. Why? Because you just heard the story. And that story is also in the book Stealing from God. The ripples continue. We can't always see where they're going, but God can. So we trust God. Now, what's God's solution to evil? We know he has a purpose. Quite often, it's to bring us to himself and to make us more like Jesus. But what's the purpose for that? 
You're going to have to come back at 2.30 because we don't have time to go further here. But we have brought a couple of books and a DVD set that can help you go further. And I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know. Before, you, before the books, I want you to text the word evidence to that phone number, 855-909-0582. Text the word evidence to 855-909-0582 because I'm going to send you this entire PowerPoint presentation. I'm also going to send you the entire PowerPoint presentation for about five other presentations, including I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That one is 362 slides long, and I'm going to send it to you in a PDF format so you can look at it on your phone if you want. Uh, just text the word evidence. Now, stealing from God goes through everything we talked about here this morning. However, that, that's a systematic way of looking at this. If you want a fun way of looking at this, get the new book, Hollywood Heroes, that I wrote with my son, because we go through all of these movie franchises, Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter. Harry Potter? Yeah, you'd be surprised. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Wonder Woman, even Superman is in there. Why? Because all of these movies, ladies and gentlemen, these movie franchises, borrow from the greatest story ever told. They all borrow from Jesus. In fact, the last chapter is, who is the ultimate hero? The ultimate hero is Jesus of Nazareth. They all point to Jesus of Nazareth. So if you have a young person and you want to get them more interested in Christianity, or you have an old person and they like movies and you want to get them more interested in Christianity, get the book Hollywood Heroes because not only does it have uh, answers to some of these questions of if God, why evil, it has biblical life lessons in it in a fun way. So check that all out. Then tonight, or really at 2.30 today, we're going to finish up this issue about if God, why evil, and then we are going to talk about for a little while, should you follow your heart? Because you know our culture today says you ought to follow your heart. I submit to you, a little spoiler alert here, we bring more evil into our own lives by following, your, following this advice than you can imagine. So we're gonna talk about that and then we're gonna get to your questions. In fact, tonight or at 2.30 today. In fact, instead of Q&A, Pastor Mike, I think we'll do all Q, no A. Is that okay? So everyone gets to ask a question, takes all the pressure off me, okay? All right, so I'll see you today at 2.30. Pastor Matt is gonna close this out. Pastor Matt.